Amen. Well, you guys can be seated. We're going to uh, worship through the Word at this point. Um, today we're going to continue in our our uh, sermon series through Luke. And where we're at in the story is that Luke has told us two separate stories at this point, right? So he's told us about um, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah being a uh, priest in the temple. Um, he's an old man at this point, has never gotten to enter into the Holy of Holies to give the sacrifice there. But as we come to this story, lo and behold, God works and moves, and Zechariah gets to go into the Holy of Holies and um, administer that sacrifice. Um, So what happens there is that an angel appears to Zechariah, and he's afraid, like everybody else typically would be. Um, And what he tells Zechariah, this angel, Gabriel, comes to Zechariah and says that your wife... Um, and you, though you've been unable to have children up to this point, you will now bear a child, and he will be the forerunner of the Savior, the Messiah of the world. And then Luke takes that story, and he leaves it where it's at, and he jumps to Mary and Joseph, right? So you got Mary and Joseph, two teenagers, really young, one an average Joe. Get it? Joseph? Never mind. It's a terrible joke. Sorry. An average Joe and his wife, um, or his wife-to-be, engaged-to-be, um, Mary. And, and we get to their story, and Mary has another angel show up. And this is how God is working at the beginning of the story. He shows up with the angel Gabriel, and he um, speaks to her and tells her that she, though she is a virgin and she has um, not been married, she's going to conceive and bear a child. And not just any child, but this child is going to be the Savior of of the world. I think I would have wet my pants at that moment. Um, What a crazy story, right? But we got these two stories, and what we're going to see Luke do today as we come to our text is that Luke's going to take these two stories, and he's going to bring them into the one story. So like Seth talked about last week, God is really only about one thing. There's really only one story being told, and there's a lot of other pieces and players in it, but there is really just one story that's being told today, um, one story that's being told all days, and it's the story of God's redemption and saving grace of His people, that He is coming to usher in His kingdom. And the great thing is, is that God is still at work today around us. This mission is still going and working around us. God is not a God who grows tired or weary. He doesn't get bored There doesn't come a point when he just gives up, but whatever God wills, he accomplishes. He does his work, and he gets it done. Um, The sad thing is, though, is as the people of God, and just as people in general, I think, we are the ones that tend to grow weary. We tend to um, give up before the time has come. We're the ones who will walk away. And maybe... Maybe it's just that we're blind, or maybe it's just that we're apathetic to God's work around us. Maybe it's that we don't see it, or we don't give credit where it's due. Um, But no matter what it is, um, we do seem to respond in ways that remove His glory and destroy our joy. So, uh, John Newton, you guys probably have all heard of him, whether you know it or not. He's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, the probably the most popular hymn that's ever been sung. He was actually a pastor as well. um, And he told this story once, and I think it nails our culture and our own attitudes on the head. Um, He tells the story of a man who's on his way to New York to gain a large inheritance. And we're not talking like 
just a, a nice sum of money. We're talking millions upon millions of dollars. The biggest inheritance you can think of. New cars, new house, a swimming pool, whatever you want you get with this inheritance, right? And so the guy is on his way to the city to gain his inheritance. He's a mile outside of it. And um, as this was given 200, this illustration was given 200 years ago, his carriage broke down, right? His car So his car breaks down. He's a mile outside of the city from gaining his inheritance. And John Newton says this, What a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. I mean, first world problems, right? The dude's getting millions of dollars and all he can do for the last remaining mile is scream out and complain and blubber about how his carriage is broken. But today, in many ways, that's kind of how we tend to act. That's where I see in myself and many around me is that we're wringing our hands and blubbering about all the things that have gone wrong or going wrong or will go wrong to anybody that will listen. Um, But if we saw God's work for what it was, if we truly saw and understood how much God has loved us, how much He has blessed us in Jesus, and how amazing that work is, I think our life would look a little different. It'd be a life of worship, not of woe. I mean, you consider Acts 17 says that Paul tells the the people in Greece that in God we live and move and have our being. It's in God. Jesus, in, in Hebrews 2, it says, upholds the universe by the word of his power. God makes the rain to fall and the sun to shine. God is the one from whom all families in heaven and on earth are named. God is the one who is working and who is powerful. He is the creator of all things. And most importantly, and even greater than all of these, he saved us. Amen? He came and he saved us. He worked grace for us. He brought us from death into life. He sustains us. He upholds us. He reconciled us. Your everyday life today is a living and breathing miracle. You breathe because of grace, God's grace. You move because of His grace. Not because of something you figured out or got done, but because God in His work and His power is doing this in you. We were made to worship We were made to worship. As you think about these things, we were made to worship, not to woe. And so that's that's what I want to talk about today. That's what I want to show today, what I see in the Scriptures today as we look at this next story in uh, the Gospel of Luke. I want to see the three responses of people um, that God is working and moving in their lives. And we're going to see how they worshiped in response to God's work in their lives. So I want to read from our passage today. It's Luke Chapter 1, verses 39 through 45, and it says this, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Amen. So, 
what I want to look at is first we see the first response in this is from Mary. Mary had just received the revelation from God in, in uh, last week's sermon you heard um, and we read that Mary had heard about her birth and she also heard that her relative Elizabeth was going to be giving birth, right? So she gets up and it says, with haste in those days she got up and went to see Elizabeth. She doesn't doubt, she doesn't question. Mary was excited to see God's work and his grace in the life of her family and she quickly, quickly Move to see what was going on with Elizabeth. Now, I want to stop here and ask a question. How many of us today would be so quick to believe in the Word of God and move? How many of us would be quick enough to, um, to believe that God is going to do exactly what He said and get up and move for the sake of His mission in this world? I think what we see here, it's, it's not um, unwise haste. It's not haphazard, throwing caution to the wind type of movement. This is a belief in God, faith in God to work and move type of movement in this world. I mean, if you think about Mary's life and what's happened at this point, I think skepticism would be my native language at this point. Um, I've not ever had sex, but I'm going to get married? huh? And not only that, I'm going to have the Savior of the world. He's going to be the one that saves all of His people from their sin. Huh? And then my relative who is super old and has been unable to have children up to this point, she's pregnant? I think all I could say would be, yeah, right. Um, There's no way I would get up and move and work. But what we see in Mary is a faith that blows our minds. A faith that causes her to get up and move for the sake of of God's mission. Brothers and sisters, how different would our lives look and be if we, like a young teenage girl, 13, 14 years old, heard the word of the Lord and got up and moved in response because we believed he was going to do what he said he was going to do. Um, I'm not, like I said, I'm not talking about throwing caution to the wind and being unwise, but what if in our own Um, and our own wisdom or doubts, we spent more time contemplating the realities of the work of God than actually going and doing them. What if our desire for security, it's our desire for security that keeps us from risking it all for the sake of God's mission? I think we've been lulled in, in the time and the place and the culture we live in into thinking we have safety and security like it's ours to have. But James in his letter, um, quickly blows that out of the water. He says this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. We haven't even been promised our next breath. Every second, the only second you should take comfort and security in is the one you're currently existing in or the one you trust God to give you in the future. We're not promised any other second. Security is not ours. Comfort is not ours to have except in Jesus Christ. We just live in a world of ignorance and uncertainty. That's where we're at. 
John Piper says it this way, risk is woven into the fabric of our finite lives. We cannot avoid risk even if we want to. Ignorance and uncertainty about tomorrow is our native air. All of our plans for tomorrow's activities can be shattered by a thousand unknowns, whether we stay at home under the covers or ride the freeways. You don't know what's going to happen in the next second, the next minute, or tomorrow, let alone in a year. But here is the great and amazing truth this morning. Your God does. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or in the next second, but God, our Savior, He does. Mary didn't know what was going to happen when she got up to go and greet Elizabeth. The reality is that she had to travel hundreds of miles to go see her relative, believing the word of an angel that showed up in the middle of the night telling her her old relative got pregnant. She's pregnant herself, teenager, going over the mountains into the hills of Judah to go see a relative. You tell me that's not filled with risk. That's crazy. Nobody does that. But she believed in the word of God and moved. She believed that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. What you don't see Mary doing, despite every reason to, is nothing. You don't see her doing nothing. You see her moving. Mary wanted to be a part of God's work. She wanted to see God's power. She believed in God's word, and so she went. We could spend, church, our time worrying and fretting over every last thing, or we could worship and respond with haste and with hope because our God is a sovereign and a mighty God. We definitely, we definitely have decisions to make in today's day and age that are right or wrong, sinful or good. But those don't seem to be the decisions that trip us up the most. The ones that we seem to have the greatest issue with are the, the decisions that seem uncertain. The ones that seem unclear. Should I stay in this job or should I take another one? Should I serve in this ministry or go to this church? Or should I serve over here and do this or that? Is this person that I'm dating, are they the right person for me? I don't think it's wrong to feel confused or uncertain about any of these things. I mean, I think that's natural. Uncertainty is the native air that we breathe. We don't have all of the answers or the knowledge or the outcome. But where I think we tend to miss it is when we stand frozen doing nothing. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, what I want to encourage you to do is move. Get up and move for God's glory and his mission in this world. And I'm not talking about moving so that you can prove your own abilities or strengths or to glorify yourself and make yourself greater. And I'm also not talking about doing nothing because we have this false sense of security and safety that we think we own and have. What I'm talking about is getting up and risking and responding in faith to God's word to see his mission go forward and God glorified in this world. What if, what if instead of worrying and, or fretting, we believe the promise that God will never leave us or forsake us, and we took that to the bank? What if instead of worrying and fretting, we believed God's word that says he's hedging us in and behind and before, that he knows when we stand up and when we sit down, when we rise up in the morning and when we go to bed, that there is nowhere in this world we can run too far from the spirit of God because he is with us at all times. What if we believed that? And then 
above all of that, when we go and we move and we mess up, because we will, (laughs) it's going to happen. We're sinners. When you mess up, you believe and trust in God's grace and His forgiveness and His love because that's what makes the gospel so great. That's what makes it worthwhile. No other religion in the world allows for such risk and uncertainty as Christianity because no other one has a God that is so forgiving and loving as Jesus Christ our Savior. So this morning, brothers and sisters, respond to His call and His word with haste and hope for glory. That's what we see Mary do. Secondly, we see John respond to God's presence and his work in our life in, in his life. It says this in uh, Luke. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth reveals to us, it says that he leaped for joy. Now, as a quick aside, a quick side note, um, I think this story has other implications and some hope and some amazing love for those that maybe um, have experienced loss or miscarriage um, who have lost a child. Um, I hope that you see, mother or father, the great news and the great hope in this part of the story. John, while in utero, it says, so he is still in the womb, leaps for joy. There are some in this world that would tell us to believe that life does not actually begin till outside of the womb. This story says that not only did life happen inside of the womb, but life abundant. That the Spirit of God was in this little baby, in the womb, and he leaps for joy at the, in response to the work of his Lord. In the presence of his King, he leaps for joy. There is no other or greater hope in this world than knowing this Mother or Father, our God is a saving God. And He can save and give life in any way, form, shape that He wants because He is knitting from inside of the womb. And He is there with that child till the end of its days. He is a saving God. He loves His children and He is working in that way. So take great hope in that today. I think joy, as we think about John the Baptist leaping for joy, I think joy is probably one of the most overlooked responses we should, we should have in our life to the work of God. And I'm not talking about some kind of crazy, um, unrestrained, Ned Flanders type of joy. I'm not talking about one that ignores hurt and pain because those things are real. Sin happens, disasters happen Hurt happens. Death, it's a reality of the life we live until Jesus comes back. And I don't think our call is to ignore these things or be fake in them. Paul tells us to weep with those who weep. But as, as we think on these things and see the reality of, of God's work in our lives, we should be like John the Baptist, responding in joy in noticeable ways. The psalmist says in, in Psalm 16, 11, in God's presence, in God's presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus says, says that he came to give us his joy and not just joy in this life, but life abundant. Jesus came in his love and he took us rebelling, hateful, spiteful, malicious, sinful people and didn't didn't ignore us or cast us aside. He didn't 
just have nothing to do with us. But he gave us life. He took our dead spirits. When, when the Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, what that means there is that we were dead. No life. And he gave us life by his spirit and by his love out of no obligation to us or to himself. He breathed out his life and his joy into ours. Do you recognize just how amazing and incredible that is this morning? That the gospel has come in and saved you from death and eternity separated from God and instead, because of nothing you've done, has given you everything. Everything you could ever want in Jesus Christ. Joy beyond your wildest dreams. He has saved you. He loved you. His word tells us He provides for us. He cares for us as His own children. He's adopted us. He's blessed us. And this isn't even the best part. Not only has He imparted those great things to us here and now, but there's a day coming when He will stand with us face to face and we will get to see Him as He is. And those realities will come to their fruition and their fulfillment and consummation on that day when He comes back. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes. He will be our God and we will be his people and all things will be made new again. He is a God of great joy and he has saved us. And he has saved us with this gospel message of great joy, real and genuine, authentic joy. It doesn't ignore pain and all the hurts of this world, but instead it gives us an answer for them. Sin. And it redeems them for all those that are His, right? Romans tells us that even the bad things that happen to us, God uses now for our good and His glory. This is the kind of joy that you can give your life to. Jesus in Matthew tells a parable and He says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in His joy, He he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Brothers and sisters, it's in joy that it's in joy that we sell and give up everything for this in this life for the sake of the kingdom and God's glory. This is how amazing and awesome it should be to us. Nothing else should matter. The joy should overwhelm all things because we should be a people of joy because we were saved through a message of joy by a God of joy. That should be who we are. And yet, oftentimes it isn't. We tend to feel obligated or burdened. We tend to feel frustrated or shocked that God could ask more of us, right? More of my time. How could he ask that of me? More of my energy, more of my life, more of whatever it may be. We have to be at church. We have to be at community group. We have to read our Bibles. We have to pray. We have to do this. We have to do that. And the obligation and the burden just weighs us down. And we're frustrated because we feel like our time is our own and it would be better spent doing something that I know would bring me greater joy and greater happiness and greater satisfaction. And while we may never voice those words, that lie in our hearts is in direct contradiction to Scripture that says only in God will you find your greatest joy, your greatest satisfaction, and your greatest happiness. The beauty and the wonder of the gospel is that you don't have to do anything. 
You didn't do anything to get God's, we didn't do anything to get God's love and his affection and his joy and the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. We didn't do anything to deserve it. And we don't have to do anything to keep it. That's on God. But as you think about the realities and the wonders and the beauty of that gospel, the one that says that you owe him nothing, doesn't it make you want to give him everything? Shouldn't you want to give your life in response to that God, to that gospel? Shouldn't it be an act and a worship of joy, not a woe of obligation and and anger and frustration? If this morning you're not experiencing that joy, if this morning you can't see it anywhere in your life, this is my question for you. If I don't have joy, do I have God? That should be the question. While it may be awkward to those around us, we should be jumping around and leaping for joy like John the Baptist to such an extent that people should notice. Why do you think it is in Peter's letter he tells the church churches that, that they should be ready to give an account for the hope that they have? It's because people noticed the hope that they had. People noticed the joy that they had, and they had to be ready to give an account for that hope and that joy. I've been really struck, very convicted over this recently, um, with the story of my cousin. Um, My cousin was a self-proclaimed agnostic, probably. Didn't really believe in God. Grew up in church his whole life, but didn't really find uh, it valid. He saw people living this life of frustration and obligation and burden and religion. It didn't make any sense to him. Science made a lot more sense. Everything else in life made a lot more sense, honestly. Um, And so over the years, I've invited him to church. He's been here a few times. Um, He came to a thing we've hosted called Christianity Explored, where we specifically answered his questions that he had. I've shared the gospel with him. I've prayed with him. I have argued to us blue in the face with him. I don't know what else I could have done with him. And yet none of it mattered. It didn't matter to him. Not that he didn't care, but it just didn't make enough sense. He didn't believe. And then about six months ago, I started hosting a thing at, uh, downtown at a, at a brewery um, to allow people to come in and just ask questions. Ask whatever questions they might have about Jesus, about God, and allow for the truth to be shared from, for love to be shown to meet them where they're at, and my cousin starts showing up. And he tells me the second day, second time we'd hosted this, he goes, Matt, I, I want to believe now. I want to believe this. I, I have no idea where any of this is coming from. And so week after week, we've been doing this, and every few weeks, I spend some time with him personally, asking him where he's at. And about three weeks ago, in the grace of God, my cousin shows up and tells me that he believes in Jesus now. No Nothing I've done, but he believes that he's a sinner and he needs God's grace to save him. And I rejoice in that fact. It's a great thing. But then I have all these questions running around in my head. What in the world changed things for you? What was it that made the difference, right? So I sit down with them one day and I'm like, what, why all of a sudden did you want to believe? What made the difference? And it wasn't my arguments, it wasn't the truth, it wasn't any of all of these things that I was using to try and prove him wrong. He met a girl 
Yeah, I know it usually starts there, right, for a guy? He met a girl. Um, she was a Christian, and he tells me she has no reason to be happy. There's a lot of things in her life that have gone wrong. But her general joy and quality and happiness in life was the most intriguing and drawing thing to him in this whole world. My cousin is super intelligent, and it was not the arguments that won. It was the joy in the life of the believer that won him over. I felt so convicted over that. Um, And I think this morning we should feel some of that conviction. If you look at the life of Mary and Elizabeth, I think they had a number of things going on that was probably not all that great. Um, So Mary is pregnant out of wedlock, and while it might be with the Son of God, you try explaining that to everybody in your village. And not only that, but imagine the stress of knowing that you're pregnant with the Son of God. I can't imagine what kind of stress that would bring on my life to know that I'm raising the one that is to save all people. That's just too much for me to handle, I think. And then you jump to Elizabeth, who's really old and pregnant. There's probably a lot of discomfort, probably a lot of pain. I can imagine there's probably a lot of resentment and bitterness that would reside in my own heart for not allowing me to get pregnant when I was younger, right? But what you don't see from either one of these women is a response in frustration and anger and obligation, but one in a response of joy to the work of God in their life. Mary responds in haste and urgency. Elizabeth blesses and cries out thanksgiving to God. Brothers and sisters, we have been blessed beyond measure in Jesus Christ, and his grace should blow us away and cause us to leap and live a life of joy. It's what it should do. Thirdly, and lastly, we see the work of Elizabeth, the response and the worship of Elizabeth in God's work in her life. Now, as I said, um, Elizabeth probably had a lot of reasons to be full of things like anger and bitterness and everything else. But instead, what we see in the scriptures in Luke is that she wasn't full of any of these things, but she was full of the Spirit. It says this, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, that word in the Greek, filled, full, um, don't think of it like a full glass of water that you would hand to somebody. You're not going to fill the glass up to the brim, right, or they're going to spill it everywhere. We're talking full to the point where there's no room for anything else. That is literally what it means, no room for anything else. And so Elizabeth is so filled up with the Spirit of God, so much so that she can't help but respond in faith. It is the overpouring, the outpouring of God's Spirit that fills up and comes out of us um, when we are filled with the Spirit. It causes her to worship in such a way that she prophesies about the coming of Christ, right? So she's not been given any indication of who this baby is in Mary's womb, but she tells Mary and she blesses Mary and says this, Blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She knows and she prophesies that this is the Lord, the Christ Jesus, who is coming to save his people. And the Holy Spirit um, gives her knowledge and understanding that this was no ordinary baby. And then Elizabeth blesses Mary and encourages, encourages her for her faith in God to fulfill his word. 
says, Blessed are you among women, speaking to Mary. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We're oftentimes more quick to point out and see the failures and the faults of our brothers and sisters than we are to see the good or the favorable in them. But Elizabeth, full of the Spirit, doesn't question the pregnant, unwed family member. Instead, what she does is she praises the work of God in her. What great grace is given and love shown when we encourage others by showing them how God is using them and working in their lives. This should be the natural tongue of those who have been given the gift of the Spirit. It should be what comes out of our mouths is grace and encouragement and and praising the work of God in our brothers and sisters. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is as... I'm going to start that over. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And Colossians 4.6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how how you ought to answer each person. The grace of God, His love, His work, His forgiveness, all that He has given us should be what flows from us, especially from our mouths. It should be quick to affirm His work. We should be quick to affirm His work in others. It should be what leaves our tongues first. We should be pointing out the work of God in others to the glory of God. God is always at work. He is always moving. He is always doing what He has come to do. And we sometimes are too distracted by our own sin and plans that we completely miss it. Brothers and sisters, call it out in one another. Praise God and His work in one another, in front of them, in front of the world, that all might know who is to get the glory for that work in their lives. He cares for them. He loves them. He wishes to use them for His glory and their good. How amazing is that we get to be ambassadors, part of the mission of God in this world. Part of the mission to bring love and reconciliation and forgiveness and grace by our own mouths on behalf of Christ as His Spirit fills us to that end. It could be that this morning or in the days to come, there's a person in this church that is hurting that has sin eating away at their hearts, at their communion, at their relationship with God. It could be that they feel the shame so great and so heavy upon them that they feel there is no way that anybody could ever love them. That there's no way that a God who knows what they've done could ever care for them, ever show them grace, ever show them forgiveness. We have been given the Spirit of God and the message of reconciliation to be ambassadors on behalf of Christ in this world. You have been given grace beyond measure, and His Spirit now fills you, so let it overflow into these people. It may be that your words of grace and love and truth and the realities of Jesus Christ are what revives the spirit of your brother or sister. It may be the thing they needed to hear to bring them back into the bosom of their Lord and their Savior, Jesus Christ. Do not neglect, do not despise the work of the Spirit in your life, but let Him so fill you that it leads you to do what He's called you to do. We should be a people so full of the Spirit of God that we see and and encourage His work 
everywhere we see it. While we don't know the exact heart or thoughts of Mary at this moment, we do know that as Elizabeth blesses her, as Elizabeth gives this praise of her faith in a God to fulfill his word, we'll see next week she responds in praise and worship of a God who is so great and has done this great work in her and around her. That's our call. We're called to let the Spirit fill us and lead us for His glory in ourselves and in those around us. Today, as I look at this world, as I look at the culture and everything around us, um, as I look at the Word of God, and as I look out among the church, um, my church family, I don't think there's any denying that God is at work among us. He is working. He is moving in our midst. He's moving to to seek and save the lost. He is working to sanctify His children and make us more into the image of His Son. He is working by the power of His Spirit to build up His church that we might be a light in this city, in a dark place. That we might be a city on the hill. He has saved you and brought you from death into life. Christian, is there any doubt that He has worked not only the ordinary, but the extraordinary and miraculous in your life? Every second is a miracle as we live in the grace of God. He has brought us into his family. He has made us a son and a daughter. He has blessed us in Christ with every single blessing in the heavenly places. He has given us jobs and families and friends. He has given us breath and life to be lived and enjoyed. And here's the great news. As I said earlier, our God is coming again. Just like Mary and Elizabeth and John got to see the working of God in the history of time, to see the Savior come and work and do His work on this earth and die on the cross and rise again, we have been given the Spirit of God and we wait now, not just for to proclaim His coming once, but His coming again. We have been filled with the Spirit that we might get to usher in the kingdom and show people what it looks like to live a life full of joy, rejoicing in a God who will always fulfill His Word. So my question today is for you, church. Are you actually living this life of worship, or are you living one of woe? I think back to the man that I talked about in the illustration at the beginning. We live this life here on this earth and this, this is our mile. This is our one mile to the inheritance. Things are not going to go great. Things probably will go bad. But there is an inheritance waiting for us that is beyond all measure and all comparison in Jesus Christ. There is a joy to be had that should surpass all other feelings in this world. So, are we going to walk this last mile in front of the whole world wringing our hands and blubbering that our carriage is broken, or are we going to go into this next, into this world, rejoicing with haste and with hope, full of the Spirit, that all might know His joy and His coming again? Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we thank You for Your work. You are not a still God. 
You are not a God who has left us to figure this out on our own, but your spirit is living proof that you're working in us to usher in your kingdom. Every breath and every second, it is a moment of reality that you have graced us and blessed us in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have worked for us great joy because you are a God of great joy and you have given us a message of great joy. So Father, I pray this morning as we leave this place, as we consider your work, as we consider what kind of a God you are, that we would leave this place in worship of you. We would leave this place on fire for you, giving up whatever you may ask of us. Because the risk is worth the reward. Father, I ask that you come and you work and you move in our, in our people, in, in my own life, in my own heart, God. I ask that you do what only you can do today and stir in spirits, God. To stir new life, to stir new passion, to stir new joy. I pray that you open hearts to the glory of God and his majesty. And I pray all of this in the name that is above every name, the name in whom we find all promises of God to be yes this morning. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.